America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to look at what the struggle for the presidential nomination in 2024 really means in terms of defining or redefining the Republican Party. Is it going to be a party whose patron saint is Donald J. Trump or whose patron saint is Ronald Reagan? A party of smaller government or a party of big activist government, particularly on issues like trade and immigration, that uh, favor, at least theoretically, working people in this country? These are among the provocative questions that are asked in the Wall Street Journal in a very important piece by Gerald Seib, who recently retired, uh, which is a, a lost... Uh, all of us who used to read him and have him on the show quite regularly. Uh, he retired last year as the journal's executive Washington editor and weekly columnist for the Capitol Journal. His piece, Can the GOP Become a Real Working Class Party? Uh, uh, Jerry, it's great to speak to you again, and congratulations on the piece. No, oh, thanks, and it's happy, to, uh, happy for me to be back with you. I appreciate the chance. Great. Um, okay. In terms of the difference between where the GOP may be going and where it has been, there are lots of people who would argue there's, on most issues, there's not so much of a difference. One of the things that has attracted working class support for the Republicans very clearly over recent elections has been not so much the position on economic issues as position on cultural issues, uh, because there's a big overlap between religious communities, between people who are cultural conservatives and uh, people who would identify themselves as uh, middle-class, working-class voters. Uh, what do you say to that argument that there's no real change in direction involved with the party? Well, I think that reality right now is that there have been, over the last several decades, a lot of working-class Americans who've kind of drifted into the Republican Party, but have done so mostly uh, for, for cultural reasons, as you suggest, that they're uh, not happy with the Democrats moving left on issues like uh, abortion, uh, on guns, on um, gay rights. And there was a kind of a um, uh, resonance, a vibe in the Democratic Party that made them uncomfortable, so they moved toward the Republicans. And I think uh, the Republicans have become, in a way, a party that is conservative on cultural issues like those, but some would argue, some within the Republican Party would argue, has really been more libertarian on economic issues, tax cuts, free markets, uh, stay out of the marketplace, um, let a, a growing economy benefit everybody. And so the question now is whether the party, having uh, embraced a lot of working-class Americans for cultural reasons, now has to rethink its economic philosophies to accommodate the people who are now, uh, what some could argue, um, the real base of the Republican Party. And, of course, Donald Trump um, accelerated this trend. I mean, his message about... Um, the, particularly the, the way that immigration and free trade um, were uh, harming working-class Americans, 
was very resonant with some of these people. And so I don't think Donald Trump had a real governing philosophy that was very coherent, but it certainly struck chords. And the debate that's now underway in the party, particularly now the Republicans have control of the House, though barely, is whether they're now in a position to start adjusting their economic policies to accommodate the working class uh, voters who are already there. And that implies a lot more government activism on behalf of working class Americans. Okay, when you talk about this uh, vision of what the Republican Party is going to be, the Republican Party is about to be caught in the dilemma uh, set up by the debt ceiling debate. And, uh, of course, what the Democrats are are doing is uh, charging that uh, the Republican insistence on cutting spending will undoubtedly end up damaging, they claim, uh, Social Security and Medicare and uh, other programs that uh, are very popular generally, but particularly popular among the working class of Americans. And uh, where... Where is the party going to go on this issue? In other words, how does this um, end up being a debate or a posture that uh, can do anything but damage the party with this working class base that they're trying to cultivate? Well, it's it's interesting that this issue has come up right away in 2023 because it is the it is the issue that probably frames the dilemma for republicans here more than any other are they a party that is in favor of cutting down government programs including entitlement programs and staying within a a, a budget uh, ending deficit spending and doing the tough things that are necessary to do that or are they a party that because they're now considering themselves increasingly the working class party that's going to protect entitlement programs and protect spending and don't worry about the consequences of that. I mean, certainly in the Trump administration, you had uh, no concern whatsoever about budget deficits and an flat-out pledge from the then-president that the Republicans wouldn't touch Medicare and Social Security. Um, now, several trillion dollars of debt later, Republicans are have to, uh, having to confront this question, and it kind of forces them to decide what their party really stands for, and is it really about fiscal discipline and fiscal order, even if that's painful, and even if it means angering some people in in their own ranks, or are they the party that's simply going to stand up for government programs that benefit the working class, because those are the people who are showing up to vote Republican. It's not the only place where this tension within the Republican Party between the old economic philosophy and a potential new working class economic philosophy comes to the surface. I mean, same thing is true on trade. Uh, the Republicans have long been the party that really was in favor of free trade, but uh, a lot of new, younger, uh, more populist Republicans uh, argue for a system of uh, tariffs to protect American goods and jobs. Um, there has always been this belief that um, the government should stay out of the marketplace and, and not interfere with big business. That was the Republican gospel for all these years. Now there's an increasing tendency to go after big business for policies that they think are harmful, including breaking up big tech companies, and including, most recently, some Republicans voting in Congress to force the big railway companies to give workers more vacation days in a new labor contract. I mean, these are government interferences in the marketplace and in, in, the, in the business world that would have been unthinkable for Republicans uh, 20, 30 years ago. Um, 20 or 30 years ago, uh, there was also not this big national focus on inflation, 
which people always list uh, in most polling as either the number one or the number two issue in the country. When you talk about a system of tariffs and trade regulation, isn't that almost definitionally inflationary? Well, that's certainly true. I mean, classic economics will tell you that, that, you know, market forces drive down prices, not government policies. Um, but I think the argument in among these new, more populist, more working class, if you will, Republicans has been, um, that's true in theory, but it doesn't really work that way in practice because our trading partners, and by that they mean mostly China, aren't um, engaged in free market economics. They've distorted the free market, and we have to now acknowledge that and act accordingly and not get caught up on kind of philosophical or theological uh, points of market purity because there's no pure market. So um, that's that's a debate. I mean, I talked in, in doing this piece with Senator Pat Toomey, who's just retired from the Senate, who is a classic free market, uh, uh, emphasize economic growth kind of economic conservative, who says the, the populist argument here is nonsense, that uh, free market uh, economic policies create economic growth. We've seen that since uh, Ronald Reagan came in, you know, 50 years ago almost, and instituted them. And that economic growth has, benefit, has benefited everybody. We, we will be right back with Gerald Seib. He's also the author of the best-selling book, We Should Have Seen It Coming, From Reagan to Trump, A Front Row Seat to a Political Revolution. Right back on the future of the GOP. The Michael Medved Show. show with Gerald Seib. He uh, has served uh, most recently as a fellow at the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas, a uh, think tank obviously associated with that great university and was until last year the Wall Street Journal's executive Washington editor. Uh, okay, I've got to ask you a sensitive question here, Jerry. Um, okay. Have they found yeah. any classified documents at the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics? <laughs> I, I don't know, but um, uh, there's, a, there's a pretty substantial archive there, so I suppose it's possible. But, you know, I will just say this has nothing to do with the Dole Institute, but this is a generic comment. Um, every, after having covered government for um, more than four decades, I think people would be shocked at how much material is classified, how much overclassification there is. I mean, it, there is so much material that's classified that shouldn't be classified that it's, in some way it's not surprising that there's quote-unquote classified material floating around because it's so voluminous within government. And so I think, you know, I, I remember clearly when a colleague once uh, sent in a, a Freedom of Information Act request for some uh, documents from the Pentagon and some of the material that came back was marked classified and one of the pages that was marked classified that had been declassified was a Wall Street Journal story. So they, they <laughs> classified a, a Wall Street Journal story. It's just, um, I think people probably ought to be a little less shocked 
um, than they many people are right now about this scandal. Yeah, what's interesting to me about this is that with with all of the charges and the potential indictments and actual indictments and lawsuits surrounding former President Trump, uh, that people expect that the one that is going to get him is that he took a bunch of papers to Mar-a-Lago. I've never understood that, that, that this is the point yeah. of greatest vulnerability for President Trump. And now you have uh, President Biden and Vice President Pence uh, and everybody else joining the crowd. So yeah. this yeah. is not going well, to be a major factor. I don't think that's the point of greatest vulnerability. I would, I would certainly agree with you. That's not, that's not right and it's not logical. Right. Uh, okay. When you talk about right and logical and your very provocative piece which is linked at our website, Can the GOP Become a Real Working Class Party? The question is, why would the GOP want to? Because according to most demographers, the big uh, advancing groups, growing groups in the United States are um, college-educated, uh, people who are suburban in outlook, and don't particularly identify as working class. Isn't there a shift in our population in that uh, well, direction it, of sub more suburban-oriented, more middle-class-oriented people than working class? There, there is, and I think that's the reason some people wonder about whether this is the path the Republican Party ought to go down. Um, I think the Democrats, though, have a similar problem. They have a party that has become um, in increasingly focused on the two coasts. Um, it has become increasingly dominated by, by people who do have college educations and who are higher income, um, and that is increasingly diverse, both uh, demographically, socially, um, and in terms of, of people's lifestyles. And they have kind of lost their connection with the working class that had been the backbone of the party for a long time. And so in a way, you look at two parties that don't really have logical majorities anymore. Republicans are trying to put together a not entirely comfortable coalition between traditional um, conservatives uh, and internationalists and business people and the working class and Democrats who would like to put together the, kind of the new Democratic Party, which is kind of more upscale and more higher educated and more socially liberal with the traditional working class voters. And neither of those is an entirely comfortable fit. That's why this is, I think, such a fascinating period and why which direction working-class voters move is so, uh, is so consequential because I think they hang in the, they, they hang in the balance here and, in, and the two parties hang in the balance with them. Well, one of the fascinating moments in this whole transformation of the two parties is that um, one of the very clear positions uh, that uh, both Republicans and Democrats took was, uh, yes, Democrats were in favor of bigger government, but not socialism. And today, the Republicans in the House forced a vote, which they won overwhelmingly, condemning socialism. But there were 100 Democratic members of the House who voted against that resolution, 14 who voted present, 86 who voted no on a resolution condemning socialism. Uh, doesn't that show a, an ideological divide of real substance at the very heart of the Democratic Party? Well, maybe, although that, it's, that, that vote, in my opinion at least, was um, a, a, a kind of a gimmick. Um, and I sure. think you could make the argument that it shows that the new Republican majority in the House 
is actually not focusing on the agenda to help working class Americans that they ought to be. I mean, why are they why are they why why hold a vote like that instead of having a conversation about um, how to uh, you know how to to, to deal with um, the, the economic needs of working class Americans about uh, how to onshore jobs that have been sent overseas over the last uh, 20, 30, or 40 years about how to um, create incentives for um, for job creation in the country. I, I just I get it, and Republicans want to say the Democrats are socialists, and I, I don't know why you would vote against that resolution if you're a Democrat, except that you're peeved that the Republicans are basically engaging in name-calling and gimmickry. Um, but I think that there's, there's a fair number of Republicans who wish – um, the party would get down to the business of actually executing a working-class uh, economic agenda rather than just talking about it. Would that economic agenda benefiting the working class need to include uh, avoiding default and actually uh, working to raise the debt ceiling? Uh, because working class could be devastated by the economic consequences if we really do default and go into some kind of government shutdown, couldn't it? Well, I agree with that. I think I certainly think that's true. I think one of the things that uh, working-class Americans and other Americans would be might be shocked to discover is how uh, rapidly their 401ks take a hit if there's a, the kind of a financial crisis that default on the debt um, would would entail. So that's problem number one for Republicans. Um, problem number two for Republicans is one we talked about a little earlier, which is that um, if they're going to demand spending cuts. Um, as a price for raising the debt ceiling, and I'm not necessarily opposed to that, they're going to have to say what spending they want to cut. And pretty soon you get to programs that actually benefit uh, middle-class Americans. Uh, and, and at the same time, some Republicans are talking about spending billions of dollars to do things that are designed to help working-class Americans, You know, provide incentives to bring uh, jobs back home, uh, do the same thing for other industries that, was, that has been done um, for the microchip industry. In other words, provide government incentives and government um, uh, uh, help for creating factories in the U.S. And employ people. I'm, my point is Republicans want to spend money uh, on some programs and defend entitlements at the same time they want to cut money um, and reduce the deficit. And the tension there is going to be a kind of a, an ever-present part of the new House Republican majority. And to understand that tension, uh, no better start than reading this terrific piece, Can the GOP Become a Real Working Class Party? Have a wonderful weekend and a great new year. Gerald Seib, we'll be right back. The Michael Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Turn it up, turn it up, a little bit higher. Radio, turn it up, turn it up, so you know. Radio. La, 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 and on the Michael Medved Show, uh, there is a great deal of talk, believe it or not, among progressives, self-described progressives, about the stupidity of uh, the excesses of what people have called wokeism, the idea of um, going over and and basically putting your party out of the American mainstream, the the Democrats, with some of their insistence on on language. You see this with the 
uh, stupidity of of suggesting that um, when they they talk about issues of of pregnancy and childbirth, that uh, they're not going to limit it to women. That you have to say people, pregnant people, uh, and you you can't say pregnant women. Well, that kind of thing is too much, even for a uh, very progressive thinker. And by the way, at one point, a potential candidate for governor of Oregon, Nick Kristoff at the New York Times, he uh, went on to CNN and spoke about uh, how inclusive language, so-called, had gone way overboard. Uh, This is clip six. I come at this from the opposite perspective of Governor Sanders. Um, I think that we should be inclusive. I think we should be prepared to uh, think about our language and use it in a way that, you know, that obviously doesn't dehumanize anybody. But I do think that we've gone overboard. Um, yeah, you mentioned, you raised the term Latinx. Okay, uh, you know, 3% of Latinos use the term Latinx. Um, uh, Representative Richie Torres, himself a uh, Afro-Latino, uh, you know, told me that, Maybe this says more about the agenda-setting power of affluent white leftists than it does about the interests of, of working-class teens. And, mm. you know, I'm speaking to you right now from rural Oregon. Um, I think that there are a lot of Americans who, instead of feeling included, feel excluded, feel that the gap between uh, well-educated liberals, often urban liberals, who are crafting these new terms, uh, is excluding them. And they don't know where to tread, and they resent it. And I think that makes them more likely to vote against their economic interest and to support somebody like Governor DeSantis. So I, uh, coming at this from a liberal, um, I think that our efforts to be inclusive have actually been counterproductive. And look, that's a, a very, very important concession and a very substantive one. And bravo for Nick Rustoff and recognizing that. And by the way, he mentioned at the beginning of that clip uh, Governor Sanders, who's going to be delivering the response to the State of the Union for the Republican Party. She's the newly elected governor uh, and the youngest uh, governor, newly elected governor anywhere in the country right now. She is the governor of Arkansas, a daughter of former governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee. And she has made a very big point of striking the word Latinx, which was supposed to de-genderfy the, uh, the idea of Latino or Latina, which actually follow the Spanish language. And uh, so she issued an executive order, and she is within her power to do that, that official state documents would not have any further use of the term Latinx. And Van Jones, who, again, very progressive uh, and but thoughtful uh, commentator, and he on CNN also uh, talked about the uh, how in- inclusive language, so-called, has become a parody of itself. Uh, Listen, clip five. Are some on the left undercutting their own messaging by going what they believe to be too far? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Great, now for Scott. Uh, Next. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously so. I think Scott and I are going to be in violent agreement tonight. Um, Look, I understand that there are people who are concerned about 
the status quo, the way certain groups are left out and mistreated. And they're worried that some of the ways we talk might be, uh, the old language might be codifying the old attitudes. And so they want new language to, to, to signify new attitudes. But it's gone so far that it's a joke. It's a parody of itself all too often. And so even people like myself who are passionately committed to these causes, you find yourself, you're afraid to even talk on a Zoom call because you might say the wrong word and then spend 15 minutes being lectured about how, you know, something that nobody had even heard of six months ago is now required speech uh, in, in polite company. And it, it's a distraction from getting anything actually done. Okay, again, when you have two uh, thoughtful people on the left who are acknowledging the extremism of some of this talk about inclusive language, uh, by the way, President Biden, uh, just yesterday, uh, heralded a, a tremendous uh, victory for his administration. And uh, it's, it's striking because of his elegant use of the language. It's a, a, a great victory for the cause of inclusivity and diversity by the Biden administration and the people the president has appointed to high office. This is clip four. Listen. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Just think about that. Uh, let, let's hear it again because it's, it's such a proud declaration for the president. No wonder he's so proud and thrilled to make the announcement. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than, more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in, the, in my administration are women. I am Of the women in the Biden administration are actually women. Is that that is that opposed to the people? And we could name some of them who actually aren't women, but uh, are still women in his administration. But in any event, uh, concerning uh, the current violation of U.S. sovereignty that is going on, one of the people from the Trump administration who I think came out of the Trump administration uh, as a, a an honorable and committed and patriotic public servant was the former defense secretary, Mark Esper. He was on TV this morning talking about the Chinese spy balloon, and he had this to say, 2A. First of all, I'm surprised by this. I think it is a brazen act by the Chinese to do this. Um, we, we were just talking about whether or not it has more or less intelligence value than what they currently have. I, I don't think we know. And so my interest would be not necessarily shooting it down, but bringing it, bringing it down so that we can capture the, the equipment and understand exactly what they do, they're doing. Are they taking pictures? Are they intercepting signals? What are they doing? And what is the level of uh, technical capability? It will tell us a lot about what they're trying to do, what they're trying to learn and what their capability is of doing that. Now, failing that, I would definitely shoot it down, uh, provided that there's no risk to people on the ground. Okay, and then uh, he states something that people need as context for understanding this mysterious... Yeah, so you problem. are surprised that this is just hovering over the continental U.S.? A absolutely, not just the continental United States, but over our you know, our missile fields and our strategic bomber bases. And so that's a great concern to me that they are collecting intelligence. And look, they, they obviously are looking for something. They need information that I would assume they can't get through satellites. 
And so that's why I would be very interested in getting hold of this, uh, whatever the payload is, and understanding exactly what they're looking for and why. And then, of course, it gives us a good sense of their level of technological capability. The Chinese have been spying on us for years, for decades. We know the FBI tells us that, what, every 12 hours they open up an espionage case. To me, this is a brazen act. And so at the political level, we have to push back. We have to defend American sovereignty. And uh, we have to make clear to the Chinese that we're not going to tolerate this. Okay, this is one of the most succinct and, it seems to me, effective statements that has been made about this episode so far. Uh, speaking of the episode so far, the latest film has been drawing a lot of controversy from M. Night Shyamalan, the uh, controversial creator of The Sixth Sense. And what I can hope for for the weekend is that um, when Monday comes around, we'll uh, be able to talk a little bit less about uh, the imminent war with China. Let's hope that isn't imminent. And uh, the, uh, the spy balloon. And again, this is one of those things, I think back to the beginning of this week, this is the end of the week, last segment of the week, and... Uh, at, at, on Monday, would would I have taken odds against believing that the entire country would be paralyzed by a gigantic spy balloon from China? Yeah, I would have thought that would be unlikely. But I also think it's unlikely that uh, a movie that that I really, really disliked won three major Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director. We will get to that with the latest from Hollywood. The biggest brand new movie this week is the latest from M. Night Shyamalan, uh, who's made movies that everybody has loved in the past. Uh, Signs with Mel Gibson was a brilliant movie. I thought The Village was an ingenious movie and one with a, a terrific twist to it. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan writes his own movies. He has had some great successes. Of course, best known for The Sixth Sense still, which was artistically and in entertainment terms just a brilliant piece of work. His new movie is called Knock at the Cabin, and it's an adaptation of a, uh, a, pri of a novel by uh, an author named Tremblay. And... Uh, it's uh, uh, basically a situation where there are two uh, gay fathers who are sharing the raising of their adorable, adoptive uh, young, young daughter. And they're out on a vacation, a lakeside vacation in the woods somewhere in Pennsylvania. Of course, you know it's going to be Pennsylvania because M. Night Shyamalan is always tries to set his movies in Philadelphia, which has been his home. In any event, uh, their idyllic vacation is interrupted by four very strange people led by the hulking and very formidable Dave Bautista, who's actually very good in the movie, uh, comes knocking at the door and basically says that the end of the world is coming up and that in order to... Uh, go forego the end of the world and to block the apocalypse the people in that cabin 
have to decide which of them is going to be killed, sacrificed. Yeah, it's a human sacrifice movie. Listen. We're not here to hurt you, but you have to stay here in the cabin with us. Your family must choose to willingly sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For every no you give us, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. It's really happening. Will you make a choice? We will never choose anyone. Okay, uh, again, the premise of the movie, well, you can judge for yourself. Uh, I would judge the premise that the novel, when you read about things like that, okay, you can kind of buy it. It's ridiculous, and it doesn't work. And uh, the film is extremely frustrating because it's it, gory. Uh, there are numerous scenes of uh, killing and suicide, and uh, and basically a great deal of suffering with no real point to it. Uh, it, you might say that part of what this uh, cautions against is religious extremism, um, but really the idea that people uh, see visions and then they are actually going going to uh, save the world by practicing human sacrifice. Uh, Shyamalan uh, wrote the screenplay, co-wrote it, and he changed the ending of the, of the book uh, and won't tell you what that change involves. But the film's very frustrating because it's obviously so many talented people, including a, uh, a very talented young star uh, who plays the daughter whose uh, name is Cooey. And, uh, uh, again, lots of credit. Rupert Grint is in it, who was Ron Weasley from Harry Potter. Uh, it's Kristen Cooey who plays Wen, the little girl. But with all of that, it's very much R-rated with extreme brutality and, uh, and, and scenes of death and mass destruction. Uh, at one and a half stars for uh, the knock at the cabin and if you feel a knock this particular knock don't answer the door uh the other movie that i wanted to talk about a little bit is a a big oscar contender a triangle of sadness was nominated for uh, best picture best director and best screenplay that makes it sound very formidable it's all about the decadence of the super rich and uh, a group of super rich people, including an influencer, a top model and her boyfriend are going on a luxury cruise. But that is interrupted by some food poisoning, a storm and a shipwreck. And no, the results are hardly Gilligan's Island. Uh, listen. The success of a luxury cruise mainly depends on you. I don't want to hear anybody saying no. It's always yes, sir, yes, ma'am. A Russian capitalist and an American communist. What a 250 million dollar luxury yacht. The ship is going under. This is really bad. This is really, really bad. I thought it was really bad. I mean, really, really bad. There is a scene in the very center of the film that goes on and on and on of mass vomiting and, uh, and also 
feces uh, coming up from uh, toilets backed up and people walking through feces. And uh, yeah, and now if that sounds like fun to you, uh, and I understand it's supposed to be a, a film that's critical of the indulgent rich and how, how much they ignore the people who are waiting on them, whose only job is as semi-slaves. Uh, and the performances are universally fine, by the way. But uh, the film itself uh, features a, a wonderful star uh, playing the model who's a part of the couple at the center of the film. Her name was Charles B. Dean, and she unfortunately died uh, right after this film came out, which means that her Oscar attention is going to be nil. Uh, but uh, she died of sepsis, which is really a very sad thing. It is, uh, it is one of those films that, uh, again, you can admire parts of it, and it's artfully done, but it goes on forever and is extremely frustrating to watch. Uh, two stars for Triangle of Sadness, which could be the most seriously overrated film of the year. And it's very much rated R for uh, violence and sex references and uh, a, a very difficult, by the way, knowing that the leading lady in the film has passed away at age 32 uh, that gives it an even less enjoyable idea for, for something that's supposed to be, it's marketed as a dark company. Uh, don't go into this dark. Uh, okay, coming up on um, Monday, uh, we're going to talk about a new Gallup poll, which has a very interesting and intriguing result that seems to be contradictory. Most people in America say they are generally content with the quality of life here, but they are not at all content or satisfied with the nation's morals. What does that contradiction mean and what does it mean for politics in this country? And speaking of politics, uh, the conservative movement has uh, basically reached a turning point, says Matthew Continetti. He's written about the history of the conservative movement in this country since Reagan. And uh, right now, there's a question about will the Republicans, for instance, become a populist party or continue to be a traditional pro-business conservative party? There is a, um, a new uh, proposal in Florida to allow concealed carry guns without a permit. Popular, maybe, for many voters in Florida. Is it a great idea? And uh, there is a um, story about the San Francisco Police Department, which took 15 hours to respond to a bar burglary. Still no resolution, by the way. We'll cover all of that and the very latest about the spy balloon, or balloons, plural, over this greatest nation on God's green earth.